1: All right, welcome to the show. Wow. Yeah, you can guess. There's there's a lot to talk about, but uh, we'll probably start with a little recap of uh, the <clears throat> debate last night, which really was more like two old guys yelling at each other. And sometimes debating the moderator uh, himself. But uh, anyway, welcome to the show. Welcome, Wrong Thinker. It is so good to have you with me. And our program brought to you by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Jeff Staples Real Estate, and also Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Very grateful for all of my sponsors. And uh, yeah, let's talk about the, the current state of politics in America. Now, I started out just watching the Twitter feed of James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies because uh, they, well, they have, a, they have a fun way of cutting to the, the heart of the matter and, and they do so with some pretty good snark. I like snark. Snark is good. But it was getting so interesting by the minute I finally caved in and pulled up a live feed on YouTube and watched uh, probably an hour, maybe a little bit more, of the uh, debate. Holy cow. I I can only imagine Jerry Springer somewhere sitting there shaking his head going, this is stupid. What? (laughs) This is cringeworthy. What are they doing? So much talking over one another. And it was just, you know, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha moments. Um, I I have to give credit. Joe Biden uh, put in a much better performance than I thought he was capable of. I don't know. You know, uh, he pulled it together, and he actually seemed pretty coherent. I noticed he was very uh, deliberately playing to the camera. Every time he would would uh, go to say something, it was like, um, "America, look into my eyes as I connect with you at a level." Sorry, I sound like George W. Bush here, but uh, anyway, he was really playing to that. I'm here for you, and and Trump was he he was Trump. He was taking absolutely no crap. He was talking right over the top of, of Biden. I thought, I thought Trump did exactly what he probably needed to be doing. I think that it, as rude as it may sound, he needed to push and push back hard because in reality, Trump was debating both Chris Wallace and Joe Biden at the same time. And, you know, if this makes me sound like a Trump fanboy, I'm telling you, I, I'm not a huge fan of Donald Trump as a person. You know, he's he is who he is, but the the moderator seemed like he was feeding Biden. OK, here's your next talking point. Here's here's what you need to go after next. And it was all the tired old tropes of, you know, the well, the president supports white supremacists and the, the president uh, failed somehow to protect the country from COVID. And, you know, and Biden stuck to his talking points pretty well. In the end, though, nothing was accomplished. I mean, the the people who really hate Trump, but I mean the people for whom he lives rent-free in their heads 24-7, were absolutely beside themselves. Why can't everybody see why I hate him, and why can't they hate him like I do? Um, And I I don't have an answer for him other than, man, I I hope you have close friends, you know, if you you happen to be on suicide watch come election night. Because if he wins, I suspect there's going to be a lot of people that are going to go right over the edge. That's very sad. I think the biggest gotcha moment had to have been when Chris Wallace asked the president to denounce white supremacists. Something, by the way, Trump has done before. Um, Scott Adams, the, the creator of Dilbert, actually do, does a remarkable job. I'll have to see if I can find the essay. If I can find it, I'll link it in the show notes. But uh, he talks about that that false narrative out of uh, Charlottesville, um, Virginia. Oh, When was it? It was uh, it was it was three years ago. Anyway, it was it was when uh, there was there was a uh, there was a rally, a torch rally, with uh, a bunch of counter protesters, social justice protesters, and a guy drove his car through the crowd when they started beating on his car, and a woman was killed. Do you remember that? And Trump was talking about the rally. And the the reason for the rally was people were trying to tear down Confederate statues and monuments, and these people were saying no. And then, of course, the counter-protesters came, and what Trump said was there were very fine people on both sides. But he qualified what he said just a sentence or so later with, he wasn't talking about the white supremacists. He wasn't talking about, you know, Klan members or anybody like that. In other words, there were people who legitimately had concerns and legitimately um, either didn't want to see those monuments torn down or did want to see them torn down, who were fine people, even if they had opposing points of view. But this has been spun and spun and, and twisted to where, well, you know, the president never denounced it. He actually said they're fine people. And so this was one of those gotcha trick bag questions that journalists are sometimes famous for. Have you stopped beating your wife yet, sir? And when Trump... Instead talked about Antifa, that seemed to cement it for, you know, I think CNN came right out. The president is supporting white supremacists. He is, he is appealing to white supremacists. But hey, let's not get hysterical, shall we? So right now it looks like the stage is being set for a racist versus a lockdown socialist decision come November. And it may sound like I'm I'm giving Trump the total benefit of the doubt here. I'll, all I'm trying to say is um, that was a, that was a very lopsided debate. I think Trump spent as much time debating the moderator as he did Joe Biden, and it, none of it was pretty. None of it shows us that we are in a good spot. Yes, uh, American uh, politics are healthy, and you know we've got healthy discourse and uh, civic involvement. You know we have a system that can be counted on to do the right thing for the right reasons. No, I think we all pretty much saw something last night that that indicated we um we are in big trouble. And of course, that raises the question: So, what can we do? All right, what do we do about it? Do we just sit there and complain? Do we just chant louder? Do we clap in unison and start start chanting slogans? No. But I'm going to suggest this at the risk of I, I don't want to alienate you know those in my audience who who don't have any particular faith or any particular um you know religious tradition but i think we're beyond the point where politics is likely to to turn the tide here and i'm just going to ask you to consider if you have ever read the founding the 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 founding generations writings or if you've ever looked at the dynamic that drove who they were and what they believed you will find that there was a very strong reliance on what they called divine providence, meaning they believed that what was happening involved God, involved the creator of the universe. Not that uh, God is a Republican or God is an American or, you know, God hates the King of England just like we do. But simply that liberty and our essential, they called them inalienable, untransferable human rights do not come from government. They come from a higher source. They come from our creator. And in accordance with their desire to live freely, to pursue their own happiness, and to not be controlled by tyrannical authority, they appealed to God to guide their steps and to guide their pursuit of moral truth in asserting those human rights. Now, if you think I'm making this up or I'm just you know trying to put some spin on here that's favorable to the founding generation, I'm asking you just look at look at it for yourself. Read their writings. Yes, yeah, some of them were theists who believed God created the world and then turned his back and went off to find something more interesting to do in the universe. But the bottom line is there was a reverence for a higher authority, a higher moral authority than government. And the founding generation didn't shy away from that. And it didn't make them proud and puffed up. Well, God is on our side, and so therefore, <laughs> whatever we say goes. If you look at the kinds of actions that they took, national days of fasting, prayer, you know, proclamations from the President, actually from you know George Washington after he became president, you know he, he talked about how we need to give thanks to God for everything that has has been done that that has helped us and blessed us and sustained us. In other words, there was humility, which was a huge part of what they did and and how they approached the question of, you know, where do we go? How How do we move into the future? And all I'm suggesting is maybe this is the time where we start to realize politics alone isn't going to be enough to save us from the mess that we saw playing out before us last night. Which further divides the country and just further, you know, cements people in their certainty that we're right and therefore whatever we do must be right. People who've done that historically have done some pretty atrocious things. And I think we are fast approaching that point. So for what it's worth, here's my suggestion. little humility. Maybe an appeal to the creator of the universe. I think that's our best hope. That's only my opinion. You're welcome to it. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, I've come down from the pulpit, stepped off the
1: soapbox. Let's dive into uh, some of the other interesting things going on today. Did you realize that the president has an internet kill switch? Now, I, you know, I don't know. Is it like the big red button? Remember, we all grew up, those of us who grew up in the 80s, you know, he had the uh, red line to Moscow and, of course, the uh, button that if he pushed it, launches the nuclear missiles or releases the missiles to be launched anyway. I didn't realize the president has an internet kill switch and I want to thank Brad Palumbo writing for the Foundation for Economic Education with bringing that to my attention because I didn't know this. But yeah, the executive branch technically has the authority under a World War II era amendment of the Communications Act of 1934 to seize control of the internet. Now, they didn't know about the internet in 1934, but but it sounds like some very broad sweeping powers were granted at that time and uh, this could be a problem when you consider how hard it is to get the truth i mean look it, the the media has become so partisan so hopelessly compromised no thinking person that i know whether left wing right wing or somewhere in between takes the mass media with any seriousness it's it's like it's like there's there's a level of sophistication that the media plays to and and it's it's below where a lot of us would, would prefer to operate. It's more for the enemy-driven and, and, and the people who are fear and anger-focused. And there's tears even below that, that that really get rabid, you know, the spittle-flingers rather than the commentators. So if it comes to getting truth out there, right now the Internet is one of the greatest tools that we have available to us, and that's why this is, you know, a big concern. In his essay, Brad Palumbo talks about how the COVID-19 crisis has taken a huge human toll. More than 200,000 Americans having succumbed to the virus, according to government data. So, too, the sweeping government response has wrought both unprecedented economic and public health consequences. Now, Brad Palumbo says, thus, in addition to the obvious health consequences, one major concern posed by the COVID-19 crisis is that unprecedented government power grabs may be here to stay. Consider that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention used the coronavirus as pretext to unconstitutionally outlaw evictions nationwide in a de facto nationalization of the rental market. Or that Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan baselessly made lawn care services illegal And now you start to see it becomes clear why a bipartisan group of legislators is now seeking to limit the government's power to take drastic action in future emergencies. He says right now the executive branch technically has the authority under a World War II era amendment of the Communications Act of 1934 to seize control of, monitor, or shut down any wire communication if the president deems it necessary for national security and declares an emergency. Now, this power applied to the modern age would certainly include the ability of a president to, amid a crisis, seize control of the Internet or even shut it off in swaths of the country in the name of national security. And it appears the president could do all of this unilaterally. Well, thankfully, last week, September 23rd, Senators Rand Paul, Gary Peters and Ron Wyden joined forces with Representatives Thomas Massey and Tulsi Gabbard to introduce a bill rolling back these drastic powers. Rand Paul said, if you give government an inch, it takes 10 miles, and this has been vividly illustrated by the surveillance state's overreaches in a time of seemingly endless war. He said, no president from either party should have the sole power to shut down or take control of the Internet or any other of our communication channels during an emergency. Gabbard remarked, the oath that I took as a soldier and as a member of Congress was to support and defend our Constitution. She said no president should have the power to ignore our freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution and violate our civil liberties and privacy by declaring a national emergency. Thomas Massey said when governments around the world turn off Internet access, they do significant harm to their national economies and their citizens' civil rights. He said this bipartisan bill will ensure that no future American president can unilaterally trip an Internet kill switch. Americans do not have to accept the, preface, the premise rather that one person can deprive them of their First Amendment rights by flipping a switch. Now from here, Brad Palumbo goes into explaining why restraining the government's emergency powers is necessary. Because he says some may fail to see the need to roll back emergency powers over the Internet. After all, they would only be used in a true extreme emergency, right? Well, why wouldn't we want the government to have all the available tools to address a genuine crisis? But he says the problem with this stance becomes clear when you take even a cursory glance at how often the word crisis is bannered about in modern political discourse. Politicians call student loan debt a crisis. The affordability of housing a crisis. healthcare a crisis. Others dub everything from national debt to overregulation over-regul- a crisis. Now Brad Palumbo says none of this is to say these issues aren't pressing, important, or even urgent but he says it's apparent that just about every issue under the sun can be considered a crisis or emergency to its most ardent advocates. So the notion that emergency powers will only be used in extreme circumstances is deeply naive. And both perceived crises and actual crises alike are often used as justification for sweeping government power grabs. As Friedrich Hayek once observed, emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have been eroded. Robert Higgs concurred in his work, Crisis and Leviathan, in which he explains how the government obtains new powers each time a crisis emerges, but rarely, if ever, fully relinquishes them once the crisis passes. Higgs wrote, in one form or another, great crises will surely come again. When they do, governments almost certainly will gain new powers over economic and social affairs. For those who cherish individual liberty and a free society, The prospect is deeply disheartening. And by the way, we've seen this play out a lot in American history. Remember, during World War II, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt used the emergency posed by the war to round up Asian Americans and Asian immigrants and throw them into internment camps without due process or even any suspicion of wrongdoing. In the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, that emergency was used as justification for unconstitutional, warrantless spying on Americans and the detention and torture of alleged enemy combatants, again, without any due process. Now, Palumbo points out many of these spying powers are still in effect today, nearly two decades after the attack. And the Internet kill switch is itself a remnant of emergency powers granted during World War II but never rescinded he says imagine the havoc a power-hungry federal government controlled by either party could wreak during an emergency real or perceived by seizing control of wireless communications yet this isn't a far-fetched fantasy if we leave the government's sweeping power the federal government's sweeping power to shut down the internet on the books He says it's likely that it will eventually be used to the detriment of American civil liberties. And once the power is exercised, it's unlikely we will ever be able to scale it back. Now, this isn't just a hypothetical. China shut down the Internet in Xinjiang Xinjiang for an entire year in 2009 in response to protests and riots in the region. Iran temporarily killed the Internet in 2019 to shut down the spread of information during anti-regime protests. Even democratic nations such as India have exercised an Internet kill switch in some regions to control the populace and stifle communication. Now, Brad Palumbo says this dystopian fate isn't inevitable for the U.S. We should be thankful for the bipartisan group of legislators working to ensure that this nightmare scenario never comes to life here. But he says it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative. It doesn't matter whether you uh, despise Donald Trump or are horrified by the thought of President Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. If the thought of your political opponents wielding unilateral control over the Internet disturbs you, he says that's a good sign it's a power the government should not have. Those are very wise words. So let's hope that they succeed in doing this cuz right now I think this is our last bastion of free speech, the internet. Let's keep it going.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I want to give a quick shout out here to Jeff Staples Real Estate. Jeff is associated with the ERA Brokers Consolidated. Definitely a guy who I would recommend that you talk to. If you are, uh, especially if you're within the state of Utah, this is where he is is operational. So my listeners in Utah, good luck. You are in in the best of luck, actually, in that you have the opportunity to uh, work with Jeff. doesn't matter where you live in the state. He's got uh, lots of experience and lots of people helping him. And if you are looking to sell your home for more or buy your home for less, Jeff Staples at Jeff Staples Real Estate is the guy you want to talk to. Just go to my show notes at the thebryanhideshow.com. You'll find a link down there at the bottom of today's show notes. This is September 30th to Jeff Staples Real Estate. Follow it. Call him up. Tell him what's what. So, a lot of talk about systemic racism going on here in the U.S. And I wanted to share with you uh, a commentary from uh, Jim Quinn. I have, uh, I've come to count on Jim as, as one of the, the better analysts of what's going on. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, Jim's a bit of a pessimist, and I don't think his pessimism is misplaced. But when you hear talk about how, well, you know, the problem with America today is that we have systematic racism, and that is, you know, that's the mantra that came up during the debate last night. It's something that you're likely to hear um, trumpeted and amplified throughout the rest of this election cycle. And it's been, it's been pretty ugly. Can we just agree that, uh, you know, there's been some pretty nasty stuff going on pretty much all summer long thanks to this idea that there is systemic racism or systematic racism, and, and by gosh, we've got to do something about it if that means burning our cities to the ground. So here's a quick look about what's going on here and what is systematic. In this case, Jim Quinn says, the only thing systematic is the destruction of America. And here's the big picture analysis that he offers. He starts with a quote from Upton Sinclair. This is one of my favorite quotes. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Upton Sinclair was describing willful ignorance based upon who butters your bread. The rampant corruption of our society as power has been consolidated into fewer and fewer hands has resulted in our political, financial, cultural, and economic systems being captured by a billionaire class who use their wealth to dictate the path we are forced to follow or lose everything. Now, this sociopath class includes Silicon Valley social media titans, the billionaires running the six mainstream media companies, the rogue billionaires like Soros and Bloomberg who fund chaos and foment insurrection. It also includes the deep state surveillance agency operatives like Clapper, Brennan, Comey, and Mueller doing the bidding of the oligarchy. Wall Street criminals like Diamond, Paulson, and Blankfeen blank doing God's work and last but not least Powell, Yellen, Bernanke, and slimy Kashkari priming the pump for the never-ending systematic pillaging of the nation's wealth. Jim Quinn says what you witness or when you witness what passes for legislators at the federal, state, and local levels, you must weep for our future. These pathetic excuses for leaders display none of the qualities a citizenry would want in those they've elected to manage our governmental affairs. They are bought off hacks, lacking any intellectual honesty in selling their votes to the highest bidder. They lie, misinform, steal, and do the bidding of the moneyed interests who selected them because they are pliable dupes without an ounce of courage or forethought about the long-term best interests of the people they're supposed to be representing. Now, he says, we are far from the republic Franklin and his fellow patriots gave us. And as Ben Franklin foreshadowed, we were unable to keep it. As the fledgling republic devolved into a mob democracy with the federal government grabbing more power during the Civil War, the banking cabal seizing control of the nation's finances in 1913 with the creation from Jekyll Island, the growth of the welfare state with FDR and LBJ doing the most damage, the metastasis of the military-industrial complex, the elimination of privacy with the Patriot Act, especially the surveillance state, and now the final countdown to Armageddon as the state, media conglomerates, Wall Street criminals, mega corporations, and billionaire oligarchs use this purposely overhyped flu pandemic to consolidate their power, wealth, and control over a dumbed-down, eye gadget addicted fearful, easily-manipulated, compliant populace. Can you see why I appreciate uh, Jim Quinn's uh, particular brand of analysis? There's no sugar-coating. He doesn't try to spin it or make it more gentle. He's just telling it as he sees it. He says these folks are wrapped up in their... He says that... uh, Let me back up here. Most people go through life not questioning the motivations of their political, financial, economic... And religious leaders. He says they naively believe they have achieved, they, the leaders, have achieved their positions of power because they earned it through hard work, intellectual superiority, and moral authority. Now, Quinn says most people are not sociopaths. They're just trying to steer around the potholes of life, raising families, earning a living, finding some enjoyment, leaving a positive legacy, and trusting those in positions of power are looking out for their best interests. He says, we're wrapped up in our day-to-day existence, and so we're not vigilant in monitoring what political, financial, and corporate power players are plotting to further reduce our liberties, freedom, and bank accounts. After decades of government school social indoctrination dumbing down the masses, relentless propaganda propagated by the corporate media mouthpieces of the deep state, endless technological and sports distractions, and being lured into crushing levels of debt by Wall Street and Madison Avenue— the masses are incapable of critically assessing how they have been systematically screwed by the ruling class. Even with the self-imposed economic depression initiated by politicians, at the behest of the captured, self-proclaimed medical experts and college dropout techno-geek billionaires like Bill Gates, resulting in tens of millions, mostly blue-collar and service industry workers, being put out of work, there are still 147 million employed Americans. Now, that's up $14 from the April pandemic low, but to to provide some perspective, it's at virtually the same level as late 2007, just before the Wall Street Fed created financial collapse. Now, considering there are 260 million working-age Americans in the country, with 26 million employed part-time, 9 million self-employed, and 21 million government workers paid for by the 91 million full-time wage earners, you understand why wage earners can be intimidated into not understanding something because their livelihood depends on them pretending to not understand the truth. By the way, he says, the propaganda phrase, we're in this together, is another Orwellian doublespeak example, as there are 10.7 million less private industry workers than a year ago. But the number of government workers is amazingly up by almost 200,000. So much for sharing the pain, and the other dichotomy is between college graduate white-collar workers who can work from home and the mostly low-paid service industry workers who serve the white-collar workers. The number of college graduate workers is up by 1 million in the last year, down, down 9.3 million versus down 9.3 million for all other workers. Jim Quinn says these pandemic lockdowns have devastated the job prospects of blacks, teenagers, and anyone working in the hospitality industry. Bottom line is we are not in this together. The Federal Reserve actions have only benefited their Wall Street constituents and the 0.1% who own most of the financial assets in the country. The poor blue-collar workers, waitresses, bartenders, savers, and senior citizens who avoided being sentenced to death in nursing homes by Cuomo and his fellow Democrat governors have been thrown under the bus once again. The rich get richer and the poor are thrown a $600 bone and told to stay and obey like a good dog. Now Jim Quinn says the Sinclair quote is even more apt in relation to the latest narrative being used by the powers that be to divide us and create chaos. The false storyline of systematic racism is being used as a cudgel to beat us into submission and compliance. The only thing systematic is the organized and well-funded traitorous endeavor by Soros and his ilk, to undermine the basic moral tenets of our society in order to institute a Marxist New World Order in the U.S., Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and eventually the entire world. They want to destroy our past by tearing down statues and promoting fake history like the New York Times promoted 1619 Project. They publicize and promote division and racial strife by publicizing the few murders of blacks by whites while ignoring the daily slaughter of blacks by other blacks in Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and other Democrat-run urban ghetto kill zones. He says the lawlessness and savagery in black inner cities with black-on-black crime is ignored by left-wing politicians who run these cities and their media mouthpieces. There's clearly something systematic about what's happened, but it's not due to systematic racism. Pretty strong stuff, huh? Do you need a little bit of a break? Okay, let's do that. We'll, we'll take a quick time out here. We'll come back and finish up with this thought from Jim Quinn about how the only thing systematic is the destruction of America. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, and I encourage you to go to the Brian Hyde show.com and check it out for yourself. If it's something that resonates with you or something that rings the right bell consider sharing it with friends. In fact, tell friends about this uh, program. Tell them they uh, they can find it and listen to it and maybe share it and even become a supporter. We'll be back after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Okay, so I'm, I'm giving you both barrels right now with a commentary from Jim Quinn. The only thing systematic is the destruction of America. And he is definitely taking apart the narrative that we have been uh, fed throughout much of this year. That, uh, well, you know, the big problem is systematic racism in America. In fact, he says the term systematic has been in vogue lately, and, and largely that's because of the propagandized narrative since a black felon dying of a fentanyl overdose was videotaped being kneeled upon by a white cop with a history of abusing citizens. And we've been told this is the single most important problem in America, keeping black people from getting ahead and resulting in them fearing for their lives as cops and white people target them because they're black. That's the narrative. And once that narrative was unleashed, the leftist mainstream media carried the ball with a misinformation campaign and the domestic terrorist organizations BLM and Antifa were funded with millions of dollars from Soros and other leftist billionaires to riot, loot, burn and destroy cities across America in the name of racial justice. Now, here's where it gets interesting because corporate America latched onto the narrative along with sports leagues, Hollywood elites, and every virtue signaling toady in America. Anyone questioning the narrative with facts is canceled, attacked, and destroyed by the mob of willfully ignorant lemmings. Jim Quinn says a white person's salary now depends upon them apologizing for being white and kneeling before BLM and begging for mercy because they are systematically racist. By the way, the the dictionary definition of systematic is done or acting according to a fixed plan or system, methodical in procedure or plan, presented or formulated as a coherent body of of ideas or principles. What does that mean? Well, it means this systematic racism narrative has absolutely no factual basis. Are there racists in our society? Sure. Sure. There are white racists, black racists, Latino racists, and Asian racists. Harvard, Yale, and other elite Ivy League institutions have been cited by federal authorities for racist policies against Asians and whites. Now, if systematic racism is keeping blacks from succeeding, why are there numerous examples of whites pretending to be minorities? Pocahontas Warren, Jessica Krug, Rachel Dolezal, Sean King, in order to get an advantage in their career advancement. He says, since the implementation of LBJ's Great Society, trillions of taxpayer funds have been spent to boost the lives of black America with a phenomenally detrimental impact on their lives. The creation of the welfare state has enslaved the black community in dependence and squalor. Incentivizing out-of-wedlock children has resulted in over 70% of all black children being raised in fatherless households. Even though urban school districts spend $12,000 to $16,000 per student, the majority of blacks are matriculated into society, unable to add, subtract, spell, or speak the English language. Their urban enclaves are drug-infested homicide zones, with young fatherless black men killing each other at an astounding rate. Chicago has at least 50 shootings every weekend with nary a white shooter. It seems black lives don't matter to other blacks, but when a black rapist is shot by police while reaching for a knife, the BLM and Antifa terrorists use it as an excuse to loot, riot, kill white Trump supporters, kill cops, and generally act like savages. He says this entire contrived fairy tale shows all the signs of being systematic. But the methodical plan being implemented has nothing to do with racism or justice. The Davos elitist lords have been emboldened by their success since 9-11, as they've utilized every crisis as an opportunity to further their agenda of consolidating power, wealth, and control over the plebes. This pandemic crisis is being used as an opportunity to reset the world in a manner most beneficial for the Davos millionaires by exploiting pandemic fear, engineered social chaos, a fake climate crisis and economic anxiety rather to implement a corporate fascist world order disguised as a Green New Deal, modern monetary theory, socialist paradise. The apparently incomprehensible actions of left-wing politicians, DAs, the corporate media, surveillance, state bad actors, compliant central bankers, and emboldened millionaire, billionaires rather over the past few months start to make sense when you realize it's part of the plan. As we've learned over the last decade, conspiracy theorists have been proven right, time after time, as a coup against a duly elected president has been revealed through texts and incriminating documents. Snowden and Assange revealed the illegal surveillance program conducted by unaccountable spy agencies. J.P. Morgan and other criminal banks have admitted to rigging precious metals, bond and stock markets. Soros has funneled tens of millions to elect far-left district attorneys who refuse to enforce the law and prosecute violent criminals. A captured left-wing judge attempts to prosecute an innocent man who was set up by Obama's FBI hacks and Bloomberg is using his billions to buy the votes of tens of thousands of black and Hispanic ex-convicts in Florida to steal the presidential election. He says the selection of a senile, handsy, blunder zombie as a presidential candidate is clearly a Trojan horse to install Kamala Harris, who had 2% popularity among Democrats, as the evil conduit to inflict the Davos master plan upon our country. Do you need a breather? (laughs) That's a lot of bad news, but I don't see anything in here where factually Jim Quinn is incorrect. I think he is right, even if he's telling it in in the uh, plainest, harshest manner. Now, Quinn says, I consider myself a rational, fact-based person who tries to seek the truth and live my life in a manner that would make my deceased dad and my children proud. My negligible efforts over the last 12 years to try to expose the lies and corruption of those wielding power over our lives seems like a drop in this ocean of deceit. He says, My message is only able to reach the few who want to know the truth, while the unceasing propaganda and lies of powerful evil men is broadcast to the masses through mainstream and social media conglomerates to manipulate their emotions and lead them on a path to destruction. He says this bad flu outbreak has been seized upon by the shrewd, evil, self-serving men who rule the world to test their universal basic income scheme, pushing Green New Deal idiocy, consolidating commerce and profits into fewer megacorporations, waging a war on the white middle class, tyrannically imposing job-crushing government lockdown mandates, and dehumanizing the populace by forcing mask compliance in order to gain admittance to places of business. Now, there's a second part to this article, which will be published, I'm guessing, tomorrow. And he says, in part two, I will demolish the mask narrative, describe the systematic destruction of small businesses, enlighten you about the true purpose of the Federal Reserve, and try to make sense of what might happen as the climax of this fourth turning rapidly descends upon an unprepared nation. Dang. This is Jim Quinn. And if you want to read more of his stuff, you will find that uh, he actually, uh, he, he, he blogs at the uh, uh, theburningplatform.com. Check it out. By the way, there's one final story here I want to share with you in the couple minutes I have left. Um, you hear a lot of talk, particularly when it comes to, well, this is why you must do what I am telling you to do. And it's, it's about the science. This came up in the debate. Yesterday, Biden was taking Trump to task. Well, I believe the science, and Trump doesn't believe the science. He, he disagrees with, with the experts, the government's own experts, as if they are the final authority on anything. Well, guess what? Now, N-word science proves you're a racist. This is an article by David Cole, published in Mag, TakiMag, T-A-K-I-Mag.com. And I'll just give you a quick excerpt, but the bottom line is, he says, with 2020s, with summer of 2020 in the rearview mirror, and after seven months of two weeks to flatten the curve, he says, I'm getting a little sick of the science. Not science, mind you, but the science. The thing that that leftists keep assuring us exists, a singular canonical truth that we must all obey. Now, he says, mind you, it seems like there's not a great deal of agreement about the science regarding COVID. You don't need masks. You do need masks hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, hydroxychloroquine totally works, sunlight doesn't help, sunlight helps, COVID doesn't linger in the air, COVID totally lingers in the air, COVID doesn't linger at all. But he says, yeah, well, the science is whatever today's CNN homepage says it is. If that happens to contradict yesterday's homepage, well, it's your fault for having a memory. He says the corruption of science by the don't ask questions just accept today's headline crowd started long before covid But he says, now, is it any surprise that leftists are using this same kind of junk science to promote their most sacred of tenets, the inborn racism of white Americans? And I'll let you read the article. It's linked in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. But by gosh, they are looking at uh, certain trends, like how many gun sales are taking place in America, compared to how often is the N-word being Googled by people? And supposedly this is this is ironclad proof. Well, if gun sales are going up at the same time that people are Googling the N-word, <laughs> this is proof. The science proves that it's only racists that are buying guns. Or so the thinking goes. It's a remarkable article. But I'm going to warn you, it's some pretty straight-up painful truth. You should check it out.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.